Now, somebody asked you the question this morning, what are you living for? How would you answer? What are you living for? What gets you up in the morning? What keeps you going after lunch when you just want to take a nap? Has that ever happened to anybody? <laughs> what keeps you going in life? What are you living for? Everybody is living for something, but not many people have pondered that question. What am I living for? What is life all about? It's a good question to ask somebody to start a discussion that gets beyond, you know, how the weather is. And you just think things pretty surfacey sometimes. Oh, the weather's great. It's not so hot. Well, it's going to get hot this week, isn't it? We're going to get a little Indian summer before it's all over. But ask the question, what are you living for? What are you living for? An important question that can dig deeper into life's important issues in, in conversations with other people. A second related question to think about this morning is, who are you living for? Who are you living for? Really, this is the more fundamental question because once you answer that question, who am I living for, the what am I living for becomes easier to answer. Now, according to the Bible, there are only two possible answers to that question, who are you living for? The first answer for a believer in Jesus Christ is that I'm living for Jesus. That's who I live for. For the believer, life is for Jesus Christ. For the unbeliever, the answer from the Bible is that they are living for the other one. They're living for Satan. Now, most unbelievers don't understand that. In fact, most people in the United States of America no longer believe Satan is real. So they would never give you that answer. And you don't really need to impress it on them. Uh, who they're living for it might not be taken so well. But that's what the Bible says. Now, when you ask people, if you really dig down, what will come out is they're basically living for themselves. If you're not living for Jesus Christ, you're living for yourself. You're living for what's going to please you, what you think is the right thing to do, uh, what benefits you in life. Now, the problem with that is that you, every human being has been created by God, and every human being has a purpose that God has created them to fulfill. And the only way you're going to fulfill that purpose is if you're living for God, if you're living for Jesus Christ. And those who live for themselves are going to miss that purpose. And their lives are going to be filled with a lot of things they shouldn't be filled with because they've missed the mark. Now today we're going to be talking about Jesus, your life. If you're a believer, God doesn't want you to just live for him 50% of the time. He doesn't want you to be 80% committed to him or 90%, he wants you to be 100% fully committed to living for Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is your life. Now, how can we live for somebody we can't see? I've never seen Jesus. I've never seen an angel. I've never seen God. I've never seen heaven. How can we live for things that we cannot see? How can we live to expand a kingdom that's not visible? Our first verse today is in Colossians 3, verse 2. You might want to look in your bulletin. There's a white page in the middle. I can find one. I've got one here. White page has the verses written out here. You can take some notes. On the back are some study questions. I'd encourage you to look those over during the week to dig deeper into the lesson of this morning. They're also going to be used in our life groups that meet. Uh, during the week, we go over those study questions and we encourage you to take part in the life group. Uh, the one 
We lead on Sunday nights at 6 p.m. is taking place just across the street uh, in our home on Isleview Drive. There's maps over there on the table. We encourage you to come uh, to that and dig in deeper. But Colossians 3 verse 2 says, Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Set your minds on things above. Speaking of things in heaven. Speaking of setting your mind on Jesus Christ, not on earthly things. Things that we cannot see, we're to set our minds above. To set our minds on things that are above. Reminded of the story of a United States runner. Her name was Martha Runyon. She'd been legally blind for 22 years, but she was a runner. And she decided to train for the Summer Olympics. And she trained and trained and trained. And she finally uh, qualified for the 2000 Summer Olympics, which were held in Sydney, Australia. Now, this wasn't a special event for people who were blind. It was an open race, and all the other, other runners could see. And so she qualified for the finals in the 1,500-meter race, along with all the, all the people who could see. And she ran so well, she finished eighth, which was just three seconds behind the medal winners, all while being legally blind. Now, now, Marla can't see in color. She just sees black and white, and everything's a big blur. And so she said all she did was to try to follow the blur of the runners in front of her. And the hardest point was as she came around the final curve, how could she run for the finish line, which she couldn't see? She just had to sense it and believe that it was there. Now, as believers, you and I are racing towards a finish line that we can't see. In fact, we don't quite know where that finish line is, do we? It could be today. It could be tomorrow. It could be 10 years from now. For some of you, not me, it probably be, could be 50 years from now. We don't know where that finish line is. We're running for a finish line as a believer, and we can't see what's on the other side of that finish line. But we know it's there. Now the earthly things that we see all around us. The buildings. The automobiles. The jobs. The bank accounts. One day will be no more. They're not going to last forever. They're temporary things. But they seem so real. Don't they? And the things that we cannot see. The things in heaven. The people that are going to live forever, those are the things that are going to last for eternity. Colossians 3, 4 says, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And so we fix our eyes above, on things above, we fix our eyes on Jesus, who is seated in heaven. And we are living for him. It says, He is our life. Jesus is my life. If you're a believer, Jesus is your life. That's what you're living for. That should be what you're consumed with. And one day, he's going to come again. He's promised to come again. And what was invisible, or what is invisible now, is going to be made visible. The Bible tells us that every eye is going to see Jesus when he comes again. And when he comes again in his glory, we as believers are going to live with him forever in that wonderful place. That is our destiny. And so today we're going to talk about how can we live our lives on this earth 
in such a way that Jesus is our life? How can we love him? How can we serve him with our whole hearts and whole minds? We're going to look at two basic principles today from this section in Colossians chapter 3 to grow in our walk with God, to grow in making Jesus our life, 100% being fully committed to him. The first principle is to put to death your old self. Colossians 3, 5, and 6 says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Now, when a person becomes a believer, when a person commits their life to Jesus Christ, God gives them a new nature. He puts in every believer a hatred for sin and a love for God, a love for the things of God, a desire to do what is right. And yet that old sinful nature that everyone is born with, the things that belong to our earthly nature, they tend to hang around. Has it ever happened for anybody else? Kind of hangs around. And we do things we know we shouldn't do. Uh, we do things we know are wrong. That's not part of the new nature. That's part of the old nature. And those things are sin. They damage our relationship with God. They damage our relationship with other people. They damage our testimony. And here the Bible gives us a list of five common problems that belong to the old self. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. Now if things change much in 2,000 years, do we have those problems today? Yeah, a few people say, yeah, just look at your newspaper. All over the place. These sins continue to be huge issues in our society today. They're promoted as being good things in our media. The sins of the body, sins of the mind. This list is primarily focused on sexual temptation. Sexual temptations are probably more widespread, available at the click of a button today than they ever have been before in the history of humanity. And these sinful habits gain power when our minds are not set on things above. When our minds are not set on heavenly things, when our minds are set on worldly things. And when the focus of our lives, when the focus of our minds is on worldly things, when we live for those things, rather than God, it's idolatry. It's worshiping idols. Now, we don't have little stone statues that we set up and we bow down to or burn incense to like some other cultures do, but that doesn't mean our society doesn't have idols all over the place. When you worship anything other than God, it's an idol. These verses say that greed itself is an idol. Now, what is greed all about? It's about feeding ourselves, isn't it? It's about doing what I want. Whether that's money, or whether it's uh, another person, uh, any kind of things that are listed here. Lust, that's all about greed too. And all these sins must be put to death in the believer's life. It's strong language. Put to death. Kill them. And get them out of your life. Do whatever is necessary to get rid of them. They're not nice little things you want hanging around. They need to be put to death. 
They must not be tolerated. They must be aggressively confronted. They must be eliminated from our lives. Then the verse goes on to talk about rid yourself of ungodly speech. Verse 8. Now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. So we see five more things. These are all sins of speech. Rage is an exaggerated form of anger. You can be angry with somebody, but hey, if you're in a rage over somebody, that's what things like murder come out of. You get so mad at somebody, you want to do something to them. Malice and slander, they're speech that seeks to harm somebody's reputation or put them down. Now much of today's humor is putting other people or groups down, is it not? Making fun of groups of people or a certain person. The word for slander also means blasphemy. And that would include cursing, making fun of God, taking His name in vain. Pretty widespread today, isn't it? Or making fun of godly things. Gossip is another form of slander. What is gossip? Gossip is when person A has a problem with person B. But person A doesn't go to person B and seek to make things right. Person A goes to person C and tells person C about their problem with person B. And tell person C how awful person B is. Because they're a problem to me. And then person C goes and tells person D and all of a sudden you get a cluster of people and you have relationships not being restored but all kinds of problems in relationships. So the Bible says, rid yourselves of ungodly speech. Malice, slander. And finally, the last one is filthy language. That really means obscene language. That's what it means. Dirty talk. Language that contains vulgar words or sexual connotations. Is there a bit of that around today? Yeah, it's everywhere. You can't hardly go to a movie. They just have to throw it in, you know, to make it adult. It's really infantile, really, is what it is. Filthy language. And if you hear enough of it, you're going to start talking like that. You're going to start thinking like that. You ever had some thoughts when you got mad or something upset you? And some filthy language came into your mind. Maybe you didn't speak it out. Maybe you did. Where did that come from? You heard it. You saw it. And you hear enough of it. You see enough of it. It gets inside of you. And so to rid yourself of ungodly speech, stop listening to it. As much as possible. Now you can't totally get rid of it without putting earmuffs over your ears. But don't willingly go to places Watch things that fill your mind and heart with that kind of language. Rather, fill your mind with the things of God. When you come home at night and you're tired, don't flick on the tube and watch whatever and fill your mind with that stuff. Why not spend some time with God? And fill your mind with godly things before you go to sleep. Rid yourself of ungodly speech. Next, don't lie to one another. We're moving down from broad things to ungodly speech. And this is a form of ungodly speech that God's Word here wants to deal with directly. 
It says in verse 9 and 10, Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. So here God's word highlights a specific form of ungodly speech that should not be seen among believers. It's, it's lying. Now what is lying? Lying is telling somebody else something that's not true. And you know it's not true. Lying is promising to do something you never intend to do. That's a lie. Lying is promising to do something and then not doing it. A broken promise becomes a lie. Lying and not keeping your word, it's rampant in our society. It's just commonly accepted. And what does it do? It breaks trust between people. How can you trust someone who repeatedly lies to you, who repeatedly says they're going to do something and then they don't do it? It becomes very difficult. It creates wedges between people. It damages relationships. There should be no lying among believers. If you say you're going to do something, you ought to do it. Even if it's difficult to keep your promise. Even if it causes you difficulty. Do what you say you're going to do. It says in this verse that believers are being renewed in the image of their creator. You and I are to be like Jesus. You and I are to be like God. What do we know is true about God and his word? Does God always keep his promises? Yes, he always keeps his promises. He never breaks his word. Does God ever lie? No, never. He always tells the truth. And we are to be like him more and more. We need to make Jesus our all. Verse 11 says, Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. The whole point of putting off the old self, the whole point of putting on the new self, is so that we grow in God and so that there is unity among the church as Christ is in all. There should be no divides between people of, in the church. There should be no divides in the church between people of different kinds. There should be no divides of people of different economic means or races or religious backgrounds. I don't believe there's supposed to be churches that are just filled with young people or churches that are just filled with old people or churches just for white people or churches just for black people. A church should mirror its surrounding community. It should be multi-generational. It should be multi-ethnic. It should be encompass people from multi multiple economic backgrounds. We should all love one another. We should all get along. A church needs to represent the kingdom of God where everybody is welcome. Everyone loves one another. And Christ is in all. So let's get practical. How can we put to death, how can we kill off these remnants of your old self? Now the most important key, and this is going to be the second point that we get into in a minute, is to set your mind on things above. It's not enough just to say, I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to do this, and focus on what you want to stop. You need to set your mind on the positive as well. Set your mind on things above. Make your goals and plans in consultation with God. Whatever you worship, whatever you set your mind on, you're going to become like. Let me say that again. Whatever you worship and 
How do you know what you worship in life? It's whatever you set your mind on, whatever you, you put on a pedestal, whatever you spend your time with, that's what you worship. You're going to become like that. It's how it happens. So if you want to become more and more like Jesus, spend more time with your mind on Him. Spend more time with His Word and you'll become like Him. You know, if you're a parent or you have observed children, they're great imitators. For better or for worse. And sometimes as a parent, your child does something. I won't have any examples today, but... Uh, or I'll get in trouble. Your child does something and you say, oh, man, why are they doing that again? And you get ready to discipline them and you think, that's kind of like I talk, isn't it? All they are doing is repeating what dad said. They imitate. They look up to their parents and they just naturally imitate them. In the same way, if we focus on God, if we put our focus on our Heavenly Father, if we watch Him, if we look at Jesus and what He did, then we begin to imitate Him. We become more and more like Him. Just as children follow their human parents, so we as God's children need to keep our eyes upon our Heavenly Father and follow Him as well. And of course, the corollary is not to spend time with people or media, I mean real people or people in pixels or printed on a paper that lead you to fall into sinful habits of life. If somebody or something keeps pulling you away from God, pulling you into these habits and practices of the old self, to put it to death, stay away from those kind of people. Stay away from that media. Hold yourself accountable with somebody else. Be aggressive. Put those things to death. Do whatever it takes to rid your life of those sinful habits. And at the same time, as you put to death the things of the old self, put on the new self. Christianity is not just about do not do this, do not do that. Yes, there are things we shouldn't do. It's, it's more about doing the positive. If you're doing the positive, if you're doing the righteous thing, then you won't do the wrong things. Verse 12 says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And so the key to growing in Christ is twofold. Two points this morning, not three. Put off, put to death what's wrong, and put on what is right. And here it says to clothe yourselves. It's as if we're putting on a new set of clothes. We're taking off the old dirty clothes and putting on a new fresh set of clothes. Replace what's wrong with what's right. Here God's word again lists five things. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Now if you're full of co compassion and kindness, now who are those attitudes directed to? It's directed to other people, right? You want to show compassion for somebody who's hurting. You want to show compassion for somebody who needs help. You want to be kind to people. Now, if you have those two attitudes in your heart, can you be full of anger and rage towards somebody? 
It doesn't seem possible to me. If I'm being kind to somebody, I can't be raging at them, can I? And so we replace what's wrong with what's right. God's plan for each believer is to become more and more like Jesus. Jesus was kind. Jesus was forgiving. Jesus was compassionate. Putting off the old sinful behavior, putting on the new righteous behavior. And it's a process. It doesn't happen overnight. But we grow in it as we put our minds to it and ask for God's help. Another important aspect of putting on the new self is forgiving as Jesus forgave. Colossians 3.13 says, Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Now when you're around other believers in a church family like this one, you're going to make an astounding discovery if you haven't made it already. You're going to find out that the person sitting next to you is not perfect. You might be perfect, okay? The person sitting next to you is not perfect. They're going to occasionally do something that irritates you. They're going to occasionally ignore you when you thought they should have said hi. They might even get irritated with you sometimes. Why is that? Well, they have a little of that old self still visible. And we all do. It's not been completely put to death. You may get your feelings hurt from time to time. And the old self says, well, if I have any problems with somebody else, hey, you know, it's all their fault. And maybe I'm just going to drop out of church. Or maybe I'm going to go look for that perfect church where everybody is perfect. There's got to be one somewhere. But God's word says, if you want to grow, I've allowed this imperfect person into your life for you to learn to forgive. For you to learn to be patient. It says, bear with each other. Why do we need to bear with each other? Because sometimes people do things that aren't exactly the way we would do them. Does everybody do things exactly like you do? Does it bother you when somebody does something a little bit different than the way you would do it? Sometimes. So we need to be patient. Everybody's different. Everybody's not going to do everything just the way you would. That's how you grow in God. That's how you grow in your relationships with other people. Learning to forgive. Learning to be patient. Learning to forgive as God forgave you. You and I aren't perfect. God knows that very well. And he sent Jesus to forgive us. And so we must forgive others as well. And that's part of learning to love one another. Verse 14, over all these virtues put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. Love is the greatest virtue the word here used for love is agape. It's speaking of God's love for us. It's the love of God. It's an unconditional love. You know, human love is I'll love you if you love me and treat me right. And if you don't, I'm not going to love you. God's love is I'm going to love you no matter what you do. I'm going to love you and keep directing you in the right path even though you hurt me, even though Things are done that aren't right. I'm going to keep on forgiving. I'm going to keep on loving. I'm never going to give up on you. 
And when there's love in our hearts, then all the other things come easily, don't they? Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. So how can we grow in putting on these things that are really part of the fruits of the Spirit? We close this passage with three practical strategies. First, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since as members of one body, you were called to peace and be thankful. And so letting Christ's peace rule in our hearts is important for our relationship with God. It's important for our relationship with other people in the church. To let Christ's peace rule is to let his peace guide our decisions. Do I have Christ's peace in my heart regarding how I'm reacting to another person's faults? Or is there agitation and anger? Let Christ's peace rule in your hearts. Go with the actions and words that keep Christ's peace in your heart. Let Christ's peace guide your decisions. I'm weighing decision A versus decision B. A makes me more money, just for example, and B doesn't. Should I go with A? I say, I don't have a peace. I, I don't sense a peace about A. I sense a peace about B. And it doesn't make sense to my mind, but I'm going to go with the peace that I feel from God about that decision. Every believer is called to peace and to be a peacemaker, to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. No believer is called to stir up trouble, to break promises or commitments. Or to be unforgiving or to hold bitterness in our hearts. Let Christ's peace rule in our hearts. And a key to letting Jesus' peace rule in your heart is to be thankful. It's mentioned several times. We're not really concentrating on that today. But three words at the end of this verse. And be thankful. A lot of things fall into place when we're thankful. You're thankful to God. That's the primary meaning here. But... Thankful for other people, too, that God has placed in our life. Everything good in our lives, including other people, is a gift from God. We are to be thankful to God for them as well. And so we are thankful to Jesus for our church, for himself, for the people that he's placed in our lives, for everything that we have. Let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts and let the word of God or the word of Christ live in our hearts as well. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your heart to God. So our hearts are to be filled with God's peace, Christ's peace, <clears throat> and also with his word. Notice that as God's word lives in our hearts, it doesn't just stay in our hearts. If God's word really lives in your heart, then it's going to come out because you're going to teach and it admonish or encourage others with God's word. Now this verse is not written to pastors. It's not written to teachers. I mean they're included. It's written to everybody. It's written to every believer. God's word, if it really is filling your hearts, if it's dwelling in you richly, it is going to come out of your mouth. You're going to speak the truth of God's word. This verse is a description of true fellowship. True fellowship in the Bible, it's not just a bunch of Christians getting together and having a fun time. True fellowship is always centered around Jesus Christ and his word. 
If those components are not present, it's not fellowship. A fellowship is doing what this verse says. Letting Christ, the word of Christ dwell in you and teaching, admonishing one another, singing together with gratitude. There is that word again. It's Thanksgiving, isn't it? Being grateful to God in everything you do. We take God's word in as we hear it on Sunday morning, but that's not enough. Let me tell you, that's not enough. You need to take God's word into your life on a daily basis, reading God's word every day. That's how you let God's word dwell in you richly. And then as it dwells in you richly, it flows out to others as you speak to them as God gives you the opportunity. Finally, to summarize everything we've been talking about, we are to do everything in Jesus' name. Verse 17 says, And whatever you do, underline that phrase, whatever you do. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks. Oh, there it is again. Giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Everything you do, is anything accepted there? Is it just what we do on Sunday mornings? No. It's everything we do 24 7. Everything we do encompasses all of life. To put on the new self, as a believer, we are to do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, what does that mean? To do everything in Jesus' name. Now, for better or worse, we usually pray. I usually pray at the end of our prayer. We say, in Jesus' name, amen. And to be honest, sometimes I just tack that on. I'm not really thinking about what I'm saying. And that's not really good. What does it mean to do something in Jesus' name? Is it just to tack that on the end? No, it means something more. Here's an example, I think, that illustrates what this, what this verse means. The President of the United States appoints ambassadors to different countries around the world. For example, the U.S. ambassador to China, I looked it up, I didn't know this off the top of my head, I just said, well, who's our ambassador to China? It's a man named Gary Locke. He's the former governor of Washington State. And so the president appointed Gary Locke to go as the ambassador of the United States to China. And so Gary lives in China. He represents the United States. He represents our president to the country of China. And even though he lives in China, his allegiance is not to China. His allegiance is to the United States of America. And when Ambassador Locke says or does something in China, he does it not for himself. He does it in the name of the president. He does it in the name of the United States. And so God's word says that every believer is Christ's ambassador. You are Christ's ambassador if you're a believer here this morning. And what that means is, we don't represent ourselves. We represent our leader. We represent the king of kings. Not just the king of one country, but the king of everything. We represent Jesus Christ. And what is the country we represent? We represent the kingdom of God. And so our primary allegiance is not to any country in this world. Our primary allegiance is to the kingdom of God. And whatever we do, we must do in the name of our leader, Jesus Christ. We do it to, to please Him. 
We do it for his benefit. We do it because he commanded us to do it. We don't do it to please ourselves. That's what it means to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the bottom line is set your mind on things above. Fix your eyes, fix the eyes of your heart on Jesus Christ. This week I encourage you to look through that list of earthly things that we are to put to death. And ask God, which one of these do you want me to deal with? Which one of these is an issue in my life right now? And then with God's help, begin to eliminate that from your life. That's how you grow in God. And look through the list of good things that Jesus wants you to grow in. Find one that complements that bad habit that you're putting off. That can take its place, you see. You replace the wrong with the right. Ask God to help you become more and more like Jesus. And in everything, let Christ's peace and his word rule in your heart. And be thankful. And you'll be blessed. And you will be a blessing. Now this morning, if you haven't committed your life to Jesus Christ, or perhaps you've done it in the past, but you've drifted away, and you can't really say this morning that Jesus is my life. I am 100% committed to Him. I'd encourage you to pray this prayer. To commit, commit for the first time or to recommit your life to Him. So let's bow our heads right now. And pray along with me, if you'd like to do that. Say, Father, today I admit that I've sinned, I've done wrong things, I've been living for myself. But I believe that Jesus died on the cross, that my sins might be forgiven. Please forgive me. I want to live for you, not for me. I commit myself to following you and your word all the days of my life. Thank you that you're never going to leave me or forsake me. And for those of us who are believers, let's ask God to help us to grow through his word that he's spoken to us this morning. Thank you, Father, that Jesus is my life. This morning I make a choice to set my mind and my heart on things above. Not just today, not just this morning, not just at Sunday service, but throughout the week. Help me to put to death the worldly habits that so easily creep in that I fall into. May I be a believer who, who always speaks the truth, who always keeps his promises. As I put off the old self, help me to put on the new self. Help me to clothe myself with, with everything that you have for me. Help me to be more and more like Jesus Christ. And I pray that your peace would rule in my heart. That it would help me guide my decisions and my thoughts. May your word dwell in me day in and day out. May I set time aside every day to take your word in. And may I speak your word. May I not be ashamed. May I not be embarrassed. But give me opportunities to speak the truth of your word to, to everyone I meet in one way or another. May everything I do and say be as an ambassador of Christ Jesus. May I hold my head high as an ambassador of the King of Kings as I 
do and say everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.